Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Just a couple of announcements before we get started. We will have a quarterly meeting following the service next week, uh, so that should be a good time to catch up. Uh, so before biblical theology, we'll just go through an update, what the Lord's doing and what we're looking uh, forward to in this next year. And uh, the second one is we're stepping away from our normal study this week because we have a guest speaker, Pastor Drew McIntyre. Um, and I'll just give a brief introduction just for those who, of you who don't know him. We've gone as a church, several people have gone to uh, mission trips to Africa, Cambodia, and trips to Israel with him. It was in 1982 he began Calvary Chapel Alpine. And so I'm from San Diego. He was pastoring when I was a child, and we were uh, in the East County of San Diego as well. So he has a, a ministry called Word, Word to the World that we support, and he goes and teaches pastors. And uh, he was very instrumental in 2002 in teaching me how to study the Bible inductively. So that was really a, a big change for me in how I approached the scripture and learned how to study it for myself and to break it apart and share it with others. And so I'm happy to hand it over to him to bring a word today. And there's a handout been sent around for notes. So please uh, have that on hand and come on up. Want to take your note with you? <laughs> well, good morning, beloved of the Lord. Good morning. Are we okay? Yeah? Um, you know, after that introduction, I feel like I should follow the Swedish proverb that says it's better to keep your mouth shut and let everyone think you're a fool than to open it and dispel all doubt. <laughs> but we wouldn't learn any. Well, we might learn a lot that way. I don't know. So it's great to be here with you. Um, the Lord has blessed me with many homes all over the world, and I feel like this is one. One of my favorites is Cuba. I just came from there a few days ago, and I've been going there since 1991, and I've uh, been there over 50 times, and it's always a blessing to be able to go back there. I hadn't been there for three years, and so uh, we did a pastor's conference there, and it was a uh, tremendous blessing. To be back there. Uh, after I go home from here, I'll be heading over to Israel to teach at the Bible College for 10 days and then come home for a few days and then head back to Africa. So the most important thing you could possibly do for me is what many of you are doing, and that's pray for me. So I greatly appreciate it. Uh, does everyone have one of these handouts? If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get you one. And uh, I'd like to give this to you uh, because it'll, you'll be able to take it with you and you can look at it again later. I do have a few extra books that were written by some guy that I'm not sure who he is, but uh, they're available to you as well. Um, so this morning, I'd like to talk to you about relationships. All right, now probably... When I say that, you're not thinking of what I'm necessarily going to be teaching on. Uh, the Bible addresses and uh, talks about many different types of relationships. Our relationship to God, what that is to be like, 
Uh, we know from the scriptures that he loves us, and he proved that by giving his only son to bear the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And then in response to that, our relationship to him is to be one of loving him in return. And that love is shown through obedience. Jesus would say to his disciples in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, it's very easy to say something, but actions prove whether it's true or not. And so we can sing songs, I love you, Lord, and other songs of the sort, but the proof is in the action. And so uh, that's one relationship that the Bible speaks about. Then the Bible talks about in depth about our relationship with one another, whether it's husband and wife or or parent and child, or the body of Christ, and, and how we are to, our relationship is to be with that. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, then he qualifies it by saying, as I have loved you. He doesn't leave it up to us to determine how we are to love one another. He says, as I have loved you, that's how you are to love one another. He would repeat that in John chapter 14, then again in John 15, trying to drive the point home that our relationship to one another should be that of loving one another as he has loved us. And all of those relationships are important, but that's not the relationship we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at uh, a relationship that possibly some of you never gave it any thought, and yet it will affect all the other relationships that the Bible speaks of. And the relationship that we're going to look at this morning is the follower of Christ, the disciple of Christ's relationship to the world. What does the Bible say my relationship as a disciple of Jesus is to be with the world? And our main text is going to be in 1 John chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there with me. I'm one that uh, feels that the Bible needs very little comment from me. It explains itself quite well. And because of that, we're going to be looking at many different scriptures. Because the scriptures can do and do do a much better job than I could ever do in explaining what the word means. And so... Our main text, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that reveals you to us and reveals everything we need to know about you, and it also reveals the truth about us. And what you desire for our lives. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would silence all the noise around us, about us, and even within us. 
that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to you. Lord, I pray that each one of us have come here this morning desirous and expecting to hear from you. For every time we open up your word, you open your mouth and you desire to speak. And you desire to speak for a purpose. And that is to conform us by your spirit through your word to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, with those ears to hear what you would say, I pray that you would give us minds to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually appraised. He can't understand them. And so we may, may we not attempt to understand your word in our natural mind, but rather by your Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts as well, that we might not only hear your word and understand it, but receive it and obey it so that your good and perfect will will be accomplished in and through our lives. So, Father, bless our time now, and to you and you alone be all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, what is a disciples? And the reason I use the term disciple is rather than Christian. There's a reason for that. The term Christian is only used three times in the Bible. In Acts chapter 11, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The term Christian, though it's valid, it has become so diluted in and by the world today. It has many different meanings in people's minds. But a disciple is used 238 times in the New Testament. And a disciple comes from two Greek words, which means to be a learner and a follower. Manthano in the Greek, and Matthias is the other Greek word, which means a learner. And so as a disciple, we are following Jesus Christ, and we're following him so that we can learn from him. And his purpose in us following him is to conform us to the image of his son. That's God's number one goal, objective. Unlike what you might hear from false teachers of today like Joe Osteen and countless others that would have you believe that God's ultimate desire for you is to be happy, fat, happy, and sassy. Well, that's not God's ultimate desire for you. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. And he does that primarily through three means. The Holy Spirit, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we see that we're being changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. And so it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And then the third element that God uses, which is what most of us would rather forego, and yet it's what he uses, and it's suffering. He uses suffering to conform us to the image of Christ. It's something he has promised. If they hated me, Jesus said to his disciples, they will hate you. If they sought to persecute me, they will persecute you. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 1.12, it's a trustworthy statement that all those that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
And so suffering is God's way of conforming us to the image of Jesus. And so as we consider this disciple, this relationship that we are to have with the world, it's important that we begin by understanding what does it mean when it says the world. We need a biblical understanding. The term world, translated in English, comes from the Greek word cosmos, uh, sometimes pronounced cosmos. But cosmos is the Greek word, and it has three different meanings to it, just like other words have different meanings. Uh, I know you're f most of you are from Australia, but you may be familiar with baseball. Baseball, they use a bat, right? B-A-T. Well, bat is also an animal that flies around at night. In fact, Pastor Ben was telling me about a bat that had contributed to one of his son's cars and burned the, the paint off of the, the hood of it. But same word, different meaning. And so the word cosmos has a number of different meanings also. We see the word cosmos used in John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world. Well, that use of the word world means the people of the world. A second use of the word is planet Earth. All right? And that is also a definition of cosmos. But that's not what we're going to be looking at today. Because in 1 John 2.15, that's not what the word cosmos is referring to. In 1 John 2.15, the word cosmos has to do with the worldly ways, the affairs of the world, the mindset, the values of the world, the fashions, the styles, everything that has to do with the world, business world. You've heard of that term, I'm sure. You've heard of athletic world. You've heard of sports world. You've heard of scholastic world. Well, that is what it's referring to. And again, we're going to look at the scriptures to get a clear understanding of this. Because if we don't look at the scriptures, we can come away with a very distorted, perverted view of what is being talked about here. So I'm going to take you to a number of scriptures. I think they're on your paper. You can turn to them if you want. I would encourage you to do that, but we're going to move rather fast. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world. Well, what does that tell you? That the world, the system, has a spirit, has a mindset, has a way of doing things. And as a follower of Christ, that's not the spirit that we have received. We've received the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we're to follow him rather than the spirit of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So what does that tell you? What does the world have? It has a particular wisdom. And what is it to God? It's foolishness. The wisdom of the world is foolishness. I was just talking to, to Zed the other day and, and Ben this morning, and, and we were considering some of the decisions that are being made by various 
individuals, whether they be in government or business or whatever the case might be, and it seems like foolishness to us. Well, of course it's foolishness because they're following the wisdom of the world. They're not following the wisdom that is available through God. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. God does have a wisdom that he wants to impart to his people. But there is a wisdom of the world that is utter foolishness to God. And before we know God, that's the wisdom that we rely upon. And how well has it done for you? Not very well, has it? And it never will do you well because it is against God. It's foolishness to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, And they that use this world as not abusing it for or because the fashion, schema is the Greek word. We get scheme from that English word of this world passes away. There's a scheme. There is a, a, a direction. There is a um, format that this world has set. And so what have we seen so far? There's a spirit of this world. There's a wisdom of the world. There's a fashion of this world. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 says this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. There's lusts that are, are brought forth by the world system. Just look at the movies. My goodness, you don't have to look far, do you? And you can see that. And, and then also, <clears throat> in James chapter 1, verse 27, we read another aspect of the world. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Well, what does that tell you about the world? Well, the world will pollute you. It will spot you. It's like walking down the road after a rainy day and there's puddles on the road and a car drives by and hits a, one of those puddles and it comes up and puts muddy water on you. Well, that's what the world does. It spots you. It affects you. Of Second Peter chapter 1, I think you're getting the picture, but let's just look at a few more verses. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so what does that tell you more about the world? There's corruption. This world is corrupt. As I travel the world, that is so apparent. I've come to the conclusion there's not a government in the world that really cares for its people. I don't care where you're from. Your government, my government, every government is out for itself. It's corrupt to the core. And some countries are just more corrupt than others. And, but that's the world. You have to understand this. And that's, why am I doing this? I'm building this from the scriptures so that you can appreciate and understand what John is saying. Don't love the world. All these descriptions that we've given, that not I've given, the Bible's given, should help us understand why he's telling us don't love the world. 
In fact, we're going to look at some verses that are extremely powerful and very pointed and strong in just a few moments. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. So the world, we're not given a very pretty picture, are we? Of this world system. And again, every aspect of our culture and society is affected by the world. Governments, business, fashion, education, everything is affected by this worldly mindset. Well, let's continue. Behind all of this, behind the mindset, behind this this movement is a driving force. Who is that driving force? What is that driving force? Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. And let's look at Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 31, this is what Jesus says. Now the judgment of this world... Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. What are we looking at? Well, there's someone behind the world. There's someone that is directing the world. There's someone that is manipulating the world, that is influencing the world. And Jesus identifies him as the prince of this world. Well, let's find out even more clearly who Jesus is referring to. In John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, because the prince of this world comes, and he has nothing in me. Well, who is this prince? And you might say, well, obviously it's Satan. Well, you're right. But let's make sure that the scriptures tells us that. In John chapter 16, verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now let's put everything together here. We've already described what the world is. We just identified who's leading this world, this system. It should be extremely clear to you at this point why you should not love the world. But there's much more than that, and we're going to look at it. And so... Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And the thing that to keep in mind is this. Everything in this world, and again, I'm not talking about John 3.16 world. I'm not talking about planet Earth world. I'm talking about the world that we've just, has been described to us in the scriptures. Everything in this world has an appeal to the fallen nature of man. It's known as our flesh, our sinful nature. It's designed that way. And that's why Jesus said, the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. Well, why didn't he have anything in Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. Even though he was tempted in everything, even as we are, he was without sin because there was not, not that fallen sinful nature in him that would be drawn to that. 
But that's what the world uses, and it's by design. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. What does that tell you about the world? The world has a course. It has a direction. And it's not leading towards God. It's leading away from God. Another verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness, what? Of this world. And so this world, this system has a government, so to say. Who's the king? Who's the head? It's Satan. Who is under him? All the demons that followed him out of heaven are the ones that are orchestrating his will to be done at this moment here on earth. Now, that's not to say that God is impotent. That's not to say that God does not have anything to do in, in the affairs of men. Praise God, he does. Because if he didn't, none of you nor I would be here right now. He is God. He is the only God. He is the one that is sovereign over all. But at the moment... Man, because of his rebellion as of, against God, there's a certain degree of authority and power that has been relinquished to the enemy, and God is allowing the enemy to do what, in part, what he wants to do. Well, let's continue. <clears throat> From what we understand, Satan is the god of this world. And <clears throat> there's an order <clears throat> to this system. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. The entire world. Again, it's not talking about planet Earth. It's not talking about Mankind is talking about the whole system. Another translation of this same verse is very important and very accurate. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, but if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded their minds. If, and I hope you do, pray for those around you that don't know Christ, one of the things you should be praying for is that God would tear down the veil that Satan has placed before their minds that is blinding them to the light of the gospel. That you might pray effectively, that you might pray biblically. And so the God of this world has blinded the minds. And he set the course to this world. He's establishing the mindset, the values, what is important, what is not important. And if this were all that we knew about the world, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you and I should want absolutely nothing to do with it. But there's more. Yes. And here's the verses I was mentioning earlier. And dear ones, please understand something. The world is not your friend. 
It wants nothing to do with you as long as you seek to follow Christ. It will oppose you every step of the way. And you should never attempt to be friends with the world. That is one of the greatest tragedies of the modern church today. And it's not new. It's happened throughout the ages. We'll look at that in just a moment. But there is more. Let's take a look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, what does the world do? It hates you. The, the world doesn't like you. If you find that the world is very comfortable with you right now, I can only tell you one thing. Repent. Because the world should not be comfortable with you. You're no threat to it if it's comfortable with you, if it likes you. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, Jesus said. You're not here to please man. You're here to please only one. And that's he who suffered and died on the cross for you. That's why you exist. That's why you've been saved. Not so that you could live your life without any consequences to sinning. You have been saved so that you can now live your life for the glory of God. And the health, wealth, and prosperity and the other false teachers have so distorted and corrupted it and have deceived so many within the church today. <clears throat> this world is not your friend. It hates God. It hates righteousness. It hates good. And if you're following Christ, it hates you. Because the ruler of this world hates all those things. The world as described in the Bible, what should my relationship be to it? Well, go back to our text, 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 answers the question, what should my relationship be to the world? You understand what the world is now. You understand who's the ruler of this world. What should my relationship be? John says, do not love it. And that word love comes from agapao, also pronounced agapeo. And it means this. It means to welcome. It means to entertain. It means to be fond of. It means to love dearly, to be well pleased with, to be contented with. All of those Definitions apply to this. That's what your, your mindset, your heart should be towards the world. You should not seek to entertain it. You should not hold it dearly. You should not long for it and love it. Well, let's understand what the world, we already understand what the word cosmos means. 
It means the ungodly multitude, those who want nothing to do with God or Christ or the things of God. There's a great danger, and don't ever think for one moment that as a follower of Christ that you are automatically free from being drawn back into the world. You're not. Only by the grace of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, there is a man by the name of Demas. Demas is only mentioned three times in the Bible. The first time he's mentioned, Paul identifies him as my fellow servant. He's a fellow laborer with Paul. He was with Paul in ministry, and it took a special kind of person to be involved with Paul. And then the next time he's mentioned, he's just mentioned, and Demas greets you. The last time he's mentioned is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 which says, Paul says, and Demas, having loved this present world, has departed. Here is a man that faithfully was serving the Lord. And at some point in time, we don't know when, but he started looking back at what God had delivered him from. And the longings began to take hold in his heart once again. And rather than confess and repent and turn away from that and cry out to God, he let those thoughts continue to the point where Paul says, he's loved this present world and he's departed. What a tragedy. And any one of us are in danger of that. How desperate it is that we continually draw close to Jesus coming before the throne of grace every day in time of need, crying out, oh God, give me grace, give me help, that I not go back. <clears throat> but Demas did. <clears throat> Things of the world, go to 1 John 2:15 again. He says, love not the world. And then he says, not just the world, but the things of the world. Well, you should be a Bible student, and the first question that should come to your mind right now, well, well, what are those things? Glad you asked that question. We'll talk about it in a moment, okay? But before we do that, I want us to look at an astounding declaration that he makes here in verse 15. After he says, love not the world nor the things of the world, he says this, and please listen carefully, and may God mark it on your heart. He says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's powerful. It's extremely powerful. You can sing all the songs you want on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or at home or whatever. But if you love the world, what does John just tell us? The love of God's not in you. There's, no, there's many kinds of deception. And I've come to realize the most powerful is self-deception. And there's many that are deceived in the church today, thinking that, oh, I, I love the Lord. Well, are you obeying the Lord? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I've had countless people tell me, 
talking to me about a friend or, or someone who is living in blatant sin, they'll say, oh, I, but I know he loves the Lord. Really? How do you know that? You certainly don't know it by the life that he's living because he's living in rebellion against God. Proof of loving the Lord is obedience to the Lord. And so any man that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And listen, that's, this isn't the only verse. Let me take you, go back a few, chap, or a few books to the book of James. And this may be one of the most powerful verses in regards to what we're looking at that the Bible has. James chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now James, if you've ever read James, you know he failed to read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> he wasn't seeking to make friends, but to make God's people holy. And so he says this, and understand, he's talking to professing believers. He's not talking to outside the church. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world, what does your Bible say? Makes himself an enemy of God. That's powerful. You should not be trying to be friends with the world. Again, understanding what the world means as defined in the scriptures. You're not here to please the world. You're not here to get along with the world. The world hates you. And the only time that the world will not seek to cause you problems if you're living a compromised life. Now, why does he, well, let's read verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, that may seem like a strange statement, but let me explain it. You see, before I knew Christ, the world had numero uno in my life. I mean, I live for the world. But having come to Christ... Now, God wants that place, and he deserves nothing less than that. Not to be duly occupied, but to be singularly occupied by him, by the Holy Spirit. Paul would say this to the Corinthians who were anything but living a godly life. He asked them two questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. He said, what? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, that's the first question. Now, he had taught them that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but why did he ask such a question? Because they were living their lives in such a way that it denied that. He knew that they knew it. They had been taught it. But how they were living their life was contrary. And then he asked them the second question, and I want to pose this question to you. He says, Know you not that you're not your own? Some of you here this morning, you're living your life as if it's your life. Well, 
If Jesus purchased you, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to understand something. You're not your own. He bought you. And he didn't buy you with gold and silver and, and what is it? What's the, what's the money here? Dollars? Aussie dollars? He didn't buy you with Aussie dollars. He bought you with the precious blood of Jesus. And because you're not your own, he says, you're to glorify God because your body is his. That's why you've been purchased. That's why you've been saved. So many Christians think, well, I've been saved so I can go to heaven. No, that's just a very small part. Because if it were the whole thing, you'd be in heaven right now. You're here. So why are you here? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 9, most of you know it. But I hope you never again disconnect verse 10 from it. Verse 8 and 9 says, For we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. You all know that. But then in verse 10, it begins with the word for, which you should most times when you see the word for, you should think because. The word for, he's explaining what he just said. You've been saved by grace through faith. Why, did, why were you saved by grace through faith? Because you are his workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. He saved you for a purpose. Not just so that you could go to heaven and live like hell now. He saved you so that you could live for him. One of the most horrendous doctrines that have been flooding through the world for the last 10, actually six, seven years, is the free grace movement. Oh, I'm saved by grace. I can live however I want. Well, Paul addresses that quite clearly in Romans chapter 6 and 7. God forbid that that should ever be your attitude. You've been saved by grace so that you can live for Christ, not live for yourself. So why would, why would James call believers adulterers and adulteresses? There's two types of adultery. One of which we all know, the physical type of adultery. But there's the spiritual adultery. Again, as a follower of Christ, you've been given to Christ as his bride. You're, we're to be married to Christ. Not whoring after the world. Not giving ourselves to something or someone else. And so he's addressing the church in their spiritual adultery who were seeking to be friends with the world. Listen, dear ones, God hasn't called you to look like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world, think like the world, value the things that he's called you to be like Christ. And one of the greatest tragedies of the modern church today is the idea within the church that if we become more like the world, we'll be able to win more to Christ. What a doctrine from the pit of hell. He hasn't called you to be more like the world. And it goes after the philosophy that the ends justifies the means. Well, what's the ends? Get people into church. Well, what's the means? The world. 
But what the church doesn't realize that that adopts such foolishness is that it's the means that determines the ends. If you use worldly methods, what's going to be the end result? It's going to be worldliness. Christ apparently didn't read the latest books on the seeker-friendly movement. He just simply taught the word. Well, let's get back to our text. Because I think I only have 10 minutes. Is that right, Ben? I what? Now, don't wimp out. You told me. I'm kidding. Two minutes. Oh, I have two minutes. Wow. I thought you should have wrote it down. And I just wasted those two minutes talking. All right, so back to our text. What are the things of the world that he mentioned in verse 15 that we're not to love either? Well, verse 16, he tells us three things. The first one is the lust of the flesh. There are countless examples of the lust of the flesh. Lust means desires, cravings, longings for that which is forbidden. Flesh is the fallen sinful nature of man. Numbers chapter 11, uh, verses 4 through 6, we see about the mixed multitude that went lusting after the things that they had once known. Watch out for the mixed multitude. That's a whole other message. The mixed multitude you always want to be leery of. The second thing that he mentions is the lust of the eyes. What is the lust of the eyes? Well, we see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve succumbed to the temptation that Satan brought, and she looked upon the tree, and she saw that it was good for food, and it was appealing to the eye. And it was desired to make her wise. The eyes, Jesus says, is the windows to the soul. I don't know if you sang this song when you were little. I didn't because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but our children did. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. You ever sing that song? Well, you know, it's a great kid song, but you all ought to be singing it too. Watch out what you look upon. The psalmist says, I've set a guard before my eyes. You need to do that. It's never been so easy to sin by way of the lust of the eyes. Looking upon that which you have no business looking upon. That only incites desires, fleshly, worldly desires. And I'm not just talking in the sexual realm. I'm talking about every realm desiring to have this and that. And, and again, the world knows all this. That's what advertisement appeals to. It draws upon. And then the third thing that is mentioned, the pride of life. And oh my goodness, how prevalent is this? Every area of life. The sports world may be the most 
prevalent example of it. Oh, look at me, I did this. But it's, it's everywhere. What does God think about pride? Well, Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon says there's six things that God hates. Yes, seven. And guess what's at the top of the list? Pride. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 7, it says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate pride and arrogancy. In Proverbs 16, 5, it says this, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to God. Again, everything of this world is contrary to the things of God. So what should you do? Become a monk and escape into the bush and try to live? No, that's not what he's called you to do. He's called you to be in this world, to be the salt and the light, but not to be of the world. Not to be spotted by the world. Not to have the world's values in your heart and your mind. Well, how do you do that? Well, mo most of the verses that we've looked at gives you how to do that. Draw close to the Lord. Don't give yourself to the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. I want to finish with three verses. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. The first verse I ever learned as a Christian almost 50 years ago. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified. Most of your translations have changed it to past tense. You may, might want to make a notation. It should be in the perfect present tense. I am crucified with Christ. Daily. Paul, Jesus says this in, in Luke chapter uh, 9, verse 23. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross one time. No, daily. The cross speaks of death. Yes, the death of Jesus, but to the follower of Christ, it speaks to death to self. You're to die daily to the things of the flesh. Because that's what the world has a draw on in our life. And so I am crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're in Galatians, turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. This is the application. Well, okay, I understand that the, what the world is. I understand who the God of this world is. I'm not to love it, so how do I not love it? Well... These are, in part, the application. If I had more time, I'd give you many more verses. In verse 24, And they that are Christ have done what to the flesh? Crucify the flesh. Put to death. You, don't, you can't do that on your own. It's only by the Holy Spirit, by the way. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you try to do it yourself, it's, you're going to get really weird. And there's a lot of weirdness in the church today. It's only by the Spirit as you surrender your life to Christ and say, Oh God, put this to death in me. And then finally, chapter 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom? The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. 
Is the world crucified to you today? Or are you excited about it? What place does the world have in your heart? I hope that as you've looked at the scriptures this morning and heard them explain that you will fall in your face before the Lord and say, oh God, put these things to death in my life. I hope that you don't come here merely to gain a head knowledge of the scriptures because you'll merely become a Pharisee but rather that you would plead with God in all of his mercy and his grace. Oh God, make these true in my life. Teach me what these mean in my life, in my daily life, that I would learn what it is to crucify the flesh and put to death so that you might live, that you might have your way. He's not going to coexist. I don't know about here in Australia and in Israel, they have these bumper stickers coexist. And they have every sign of every religion in it. Well, Christ isn't going to coexist with anyone. And he deserves nothing but all of your heart and your life. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your word, Lord, that reveals to us your truth. And I pray, Father, that by your spirit that you would, where I have failed to make it clear, that you would make it clear to each one. And Lord, that these words would continue to ring in our hearts and our minds. In the hours and the days to come, I pray that you would guard the word that's been sown into our heart from being snatched away by the enemy. And that you might water it in the days to come and cause it to grow and to bring forth fruit to your glory. May you continue to bless this fellowship of believers, Father. I thank you for them. May you bless each one and keep them and draw them close to you. And may we always be careful and quick to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.